Welcome back to Jaffa Space, the podcast about food, farming, and environmental education. This season, we are sharing the recordings from the speaker series Acting for Change, Creating Justice, produced by Ecar Farm, an earth-based Jewish farm in Denver, Colorado. You can learn more about Ecar Farm at ecarfarm.org. This is also produced as a part of the Shemitah Project, an initiative committed to raising awareness about the Shemitah tradition in Judaism as a relevant commentary on contemporary issues. You can learn more about the Shemitah Project at shemitahproject.org. A link is available in the episode notes. This episode features co-hosts Hannah Perez-Poston and Adam Brock, and their guest speakers Paul Sherman, the outreach manager for Mazone, and Dr. Damian Thompson, the co-founder of Frontline Farming in Colorado and the director of the Center for Food Justice in Healthy Communities. They discuss food justice and food sovereignty through the lens of Shemitah. You will also hear about what brought them to their work as activists and what we can all do to contribute to and organize for a more just society for everyone. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Acting for Change, Creating Justice, a Shemitah-inspired speaker series uh, hosted by Ecar Farm here in Denver, Colorado. This is part four in a six-part series exploring the connections between the ancient Jewish agricultural technology of Shemitah and contemporary movements for justice and liberation. Um, and specifically wanna welcome members of the Rhythms for Change cohort here in Denver, as well as the group in Ann Arbor, Michigan, organized by the Alliance for Earth and Land Justice, as well as anybody else who's found their way uh, to this call, or if you're listening afterwards this recording, um, thank you all for joining us and for your commitment uh, to this wonderful topic. Also wanna appreciate our technical partners at Hazone. Um, they are running our live recording as well as turning it into uh, the audio of a podcast, uh, which you can find at the Joffe Space Podcast, that's J-O-F-E-E, and you can also find a recording of this conversation at ecarfarm.org slash shmita, uh, as well as a ton of resources and discussion questions related to our conversation today. Uh, a couple of tech uh, requests. Uh, if you are joining us live today, uh, please uh, keep your screen on if you can, so we can see your lovely faces. Uh, feel free to put your name and location in the chat uh, so we know who you are and where you're coming from. Um, and uh, probably you'll want to keep yourself muted throughout uh, our conversation today. We will have some opportunities uh, to hear from you. We would love to hear your questions as we get into this conversation here in about five minutes. Uh, but our request is that you put those convers or you put those questions in the chat window, and we will be monitoring those and making sure that as many of them as possible get addressed. Okay. So with those logistics out of the way, um, I wanna just open us up with uh, a couple uh, blessings and visualizations, then I'll introduce our guests and hand it over to my co-host, uh, Hannah Perez-Postman, and she will be uh, leading the conversation itself. But first, uh, I wanna invite us all to just take a moment, um, ground ourselves, uh, if that means closing your eyes, if that means looking out the window, uh, if you have a window nearby, um, or maybe just uh, kind of take, taking a minute to, to breathe and think about where you are today in, in the bigger picture, maybe a bigger picture in space or a bigger picture in time. 
And I'm going to open us up with an acknowledgement of land. This is something that uh, was adapted by Perry Jardine of Pearlstone Retreat Center. And I think it's, it's really wonderful words for our conversation today. We gather virtually today on stolen land, land that belongs to no one, but that was tended lovingly for thousands of years by a multitude of nations, those who we know and those whose names have been lost to history. We did not receive permission to be here and no amount of words can do justice to the suffering that those nations experienced at the hands of European settlers. We gather here today in the hope, always present, that love can heal, that the traumas of the past and present can yet be overcome with compassionate learning, collaboration, and graceful action. May this humble gathering serve as a small step towards remembering our true place in the dance of life, a small step on our long path back home. Also in, in recognition today of the many traumas uh, being experienced around the world in places like India and Brazil in Israel, Palestine, of course, I just wanna share a couple other blessings from uh, Rabbi Erwin Keller, who's based on the East Coast, uh, Sonoma County in California. Um, he shared a whole list of blessings. I'll share it in the chat window that he called blessings during a surge of violence. And I'm just gonna share a couple of them. Baruch Ha'itzev. Blessed be my sadness, born of pain and grief. May it keep my heart open to all suffering. Brucha halahitut. Blessed be my impatience. May I lift my voice to demand an end to this. Now, not waiting until more lives are lost. Brucha hasavlanut. Blessed be my patience. May it make clear things that are not yet clear. May it support me in the slow study of the fears and angers, hopes and traumas that birthed this moment. Okay, thank you all for bearing witness to those words. So as we mentioned at the top, uh, these conversations, this, this whole series of conversations is rooted in this ancient set of principles, laws, called Shemitah. Shemitah uh, is mentioned several different times in the Torah and in the texts that came after it. Um, and it's about one year out of every seven being a year of rest or, or literally release. So this week we're focusing on how those laws relate to uh, food and, and food justice. Um, so we're just gonna name uh, one brief quote that, that comes from the Torah um, that talks a little bit about uh, how this technology relates to liberation and our relationship between um, each other and the land. So that text goes, for six years, you are to sow your land and gather in its produce, but in the seventh, you are to let it go and to let it be, that the needy of your people may eat and what remains the wildlife of the field shall eat. Do thus with your vineyard, with your olive grove." Right, so essentially it says that for, for six years, you can grow food the way you need to grow food, but every seven years, you let that field go, 
you share that food with anybody that needs it, uh, including humans, but also the more than human world. And you do that with all of the different things that you grow. There's also uh, uh, not in that quote, but in other Shemitah texts, they talk about during that seventh year, you're not allowed to buy food or sell food. Um, anything that you've stockpiled, that you've saved, you have to give away. So all kinds of really radical, um, innovative, inspiring, and uh, honestly relevant ways of thinking about food that, uh, that I think our two speakers today will have a lot to share about. So our first speaker is Damian Thompson. Um, I'm so glad to be uh, having him on our, on our series. Damian is someone who I've been uh, on this journey with for over a decade now of justice and liberation in our food system. Um, and he's up to so many things that the bio we have on, his, uh, on the ECAR website is already out of date. He was a professor at Regis University, but he just accepted a new position um, at the Masters of the Environment program at CU Boulder, um, as well as uh, being the co-executive director of an incredible nonprofit uh, led by Black and Brown and Indigenous communities called Frontline Farming here in Denver. Um, he is also a permaculture designer, a yoga teacher trainer, a father, a husband, and all kinds of other amazing things. We're also joined today by Paul, Paul Sherman. Paul uh, was uh, also in Denver when he got his beginning to uh, food, food justice and food systems issues. When he was an undergrad at the University of Denver, he founded their chapter of the Food Recovery Network. Um, today though, Paul joins us from the East Coast in the Washington DC area as a representative of Mazon, a Jewish response to hunger. Um, and in that role, Paul builds relationships across the East Coast with Jewish community-based organizations, including synagogues and anti-hunger organizations. So really excited to hear Paul's Jewish perspective on these issues um, and see that in dialogue with, uh, with what Damien has to share from being on the ground in the fields. So with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Hannah um, and she is going to uh, kick things off with our two speakers. Thanks everyone. Thank you, Adam, for that lovely introduction. And thank you, Dr. Damian Thompson and Paul Sherman for joining us today on this Sunday. And thanks to everyone who's um, taking time on this, well, in Colorado, gloomy Sunday morning to uh, join us for this conversation and explore what, what our food system is like and how Shemitah can inform our understanding of it. Um, I would love if everybody uh, could put in the chat where they're coming from this morning and what brings them here. Just, you know, a quick word or two uh, would be great. And yeah, so as Adam shared and as we saw in the slide, Shemitah, one of the foundations of Shemitah is, is really this understanding of food and where food comes from and, and what, how it is distributed among the people. And um, Shmita was established because the, the community, the society at the time, this ancient agricultural Jewish society saw that there was inequality and inequity in how food was distributed and how land was distributed and who gained money. And so they created the system to, to prevent the um, widening of inequities within, within the society. And it was an attempt to rebalance and bring, make sure that everyone has enough to eat and that debt isn't accrued over such a long period of time. And um, 
we're just really excited to see what, if any, this, this framework and this blueprint has to do with our contemporary food system and with how we can be informed by that. And so I'd love to um, turn to our speakers and maybe starting with uh, Dr. Damien Thompson here about your food journey. What is the work that you're doing and what brought you to this work? Um, kind of that, yeah, that journey for you. Excellent. Um, thanks, Hannah. Thanks, Adam, for the introductions. Thanks to uh, everyone for taking the opportunity on this Sunday morning slash afternoon, maybe for some of you. Um, so I just wanted to say a, a little bit about my background um, and then I'll turn it over to Paul. I don't wanna to take too much space. Um, I guess I, I always kind of start these conversations by saying that obviously um, I'm the descendant of, of, of people who were enslaved and stolen from the continent of Africa brought to the shores of the United States. Um, born and raised in North Carolina, um, and I'm also the, the, the son, the great-grandson of, of sharecroppers. And so that's kind of where I really feel like my, my journey in this conversation begins, uh, recognizing that my great-grandparents both sets left South Carolina, the low country uh, where, the Gullah, where the Gullah Geechee people um, still reside today, uh, moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and one set of great-grandparents, uh, one great-grandfather after a considerable amount of effort um, acquired 100 acres of land. And so that 100 acres of land, the family farm that my, my grandmother and my mother grew up on. And so for me, um, it's always interesting having these conversations because because of that history, I've never felt a particular disconnection from the land, or should I say that my disconnection from the land is maybe a little bit less deeply rooted than some um, some folks in the United States only having been a couple of generations removed. And one of the most important things um, that I got out of that experience, or at least my family's experience, I was a little too young to experience uh, life on the farm in that way, was that my mother always said that we were poor, but we didn't know it. And so there's always been a recognition um, that I've had that as long as you had access to the land, that you could be material, that you could not have what other people have monetarily, but as long as you have access to the land and as long as you have access to the capacity to be productive, um, then you're never poor. And so, you know, I think that that's a really important, that's, that's been a message that has, that has perpetuated, that it's moved forward with me, um, you know, throughout my entire journey. And so just to fast forward a little bit, um, not very far from where um, Paul is probably sitting in Washington, DC, I, I went to um, American University for my PhD and actually wrote about gentrification, but it was that experience that started me in the conversation around food, right? Really for the first time as a kid from, from North Carolina who had always had access to certain things, had always had access to green space, had always had access to certain types of foods, or at least I thought I always had access to certain types of foods, right? And living in a heavily immigrant community, a black and brown community, um, and recognizing the the lack of access, um, the, the purposeful, the created lack of access that black and brown people, immigrant communities experience um, around food, those apartheid situations, which we talk about food apartheid a lot with, with frontline farming. And so I started to think about like, what's the psychology around not having access to things, right? What does it do to you or not just your body, but also like your psychology, how you think about yourself, how you think about your community. So when I got to Denver, 
Um, I, I grew my first, I think it was like my first summer in Denver, 2009. I grew my first garden um, at the encouragement of a friend and it just kind of all hit me at once. Like all those things, right? Race, um, socioeconomics, the nature of the city, um, what we could do to, to develop or develop in a, in a meaningful and important way for black and brown people, the communities that we've already exist, or we've always existed in rather than just simply like resorting to gentrifying um, economic development plans. And so food really became this opportunity for me to investigate many of the different things from the spiritual to the material that I've always had concern about and always had interest in but could never find that that one point of convergence. And so food farming became that for me. Um, and so that's a little bit about how I got uh, started in, in this work that led me to, to, to meeting Adam, um, to doing some of those very first um, C, uh, what was it, the, the, the program with the high school students, Seed to Seed program at the Grow House, right? When it was in its infancy. And that was really my beginning of being a community teacher you know, I went on and did my permaculture certification with Adam again, went on to do my um, advanced permaculture certification um, and through different mechanisms that we don't have time to speak about now, actually had the opportunity to become a farmer myself, right? Had the opportunity to start um, frontline farming with my colleague Fatima Imad. And just so we're clear, frontline farming is a food justice Farm work, farmer and farm worker advocacy organization, right? So we advocate for justice or, or, or across the food system, um, not just within the context of, of farmers or farm owners. Um, so I'm gonna stop there because I wanna make sure that Paul has some space um, and then we'll come back around and I'll continue my story. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Damien. That's uh, incredible. I'm excited to dive into some of those threads that you just spun out for us. And uh, Paul, yeah, I would love to hear about your story, where you came from and where you are now and how it is related to food and and Jewish identity, if that, you know, because that's Shemitah. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you, Hannah. And thank you, Damien, for that beautiful intro. I'm really honored to share this space with you and I'm really inspired by the work that Frontline Farming does. So I'm, I'm excited for this conversation. Um, so yeah, a little bit about where the perspective that I'm coming from with this work um, is, you know, as Adam mentioned, I began to get really deeply involved with food systems issues when I was studying at the University of Denver. Um, and, you know, I had always obviously known about the issue of hunger and uh, I was fortunate enough not to experience it myself growing up, but, you know, would volunteer at soup kitchens and, and food banks and things like that. But uh, when I was studying at DU, the thing that really just made me feel like I cannot ignore it anymore was when I learned about it alongside the issue of food waste. Um, and so I had a professor who very aptly taught us about these issues simultaneously alongside one another. We have all of this food uh, that is going to waste that is completely detrimental to the environment. And meanwhile, we have millions of people in the United States alone that are struggling to feed themselves and their families every single day. Um, and like you said, Hannah, it was really my, the Jewish values that have been instilled with me my entire life are, I think sort of that, that the driving force uh, behind, you know, when I learned about those issues, I really felt like I just could not turn away and that this was um, something I needed to get involved in. And so I 
coordinated uh, an effort between our on-campus dining provider and local nonprofit hunger fighting agencies in Denver to recover surplus food from the dining halls at the end of the day and redistribute it to those organizations. Um, and that was actually what, when I graduated from DU, what brought me out to the DC area. Um, that organization Food Recovery Network is based in this area. So I completed a year long fellowship with them. And from there I was uh, really fortunate to find Mazone and tap more directly back into those Jewish values that were, you know, that we're here to talk about. Um, Mazone, a Jewish response to hunger, uh, inspired by Jewish values and ideals, we are an advocacy organization working to end hunger among people of all faiths and backgrounds. Um, and it was really that advocacy piece that spoke to me. You know, I was so inspired by food recovery, by this, uh, the importance of getting people fed today with perfectly good food that, uh, you know, had we not redistributed that they, these, these people might not have eaten that day. Um, but I also wanted to dig a little bit deeper into some of the root causes of why people are able to go hungry in the first place, especially when it is not an issue of food shortage. It's a matter of political will, it's a distribution issue. Um, and it is marginalized communities in the United States that are seeing the effects of this uh, you know, more than anybody else. And I wanted to dig into some of that systemic the systemic reasons why people are able to go hungry in the first place. Um, and so while I transitioned from food recovery into that more uh, policy and advocacy uh, path to ending hunger, my core values have stayed the same. And that's that I believe that no one should struggle to feed themselves and their families with dignity. Food is a human right. And um, I think we have a real ability to create a world in which no one struggles to feed themselves and their families. And so I'll, I'll uh, just say one more quick thing and then I'll, you know, we, we can dig into the conversation, but uh, to go back to those Jewish values that you spoke about, Hannah, there's a quote from Leviticus. Um, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You should leave them for the poor and the strangers. Um, I think this relates directly to the issue of uh, two Shemitah and what, you know, the, in the arc uh, of this whole conversation. Um, and we can talk about some of the modern implications of how we make sure that uh, that food is left for the people who need it most. Um, so I'll stop there. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. Is it okay if I jump in, Hannah, and kind of just yeah. like keep it going, just to um, make it make it feel snappy? Um, yeah, I mean, like, there are some important things that Paul mentioned, you know, and I think that you know, so I did a little poking around about Shemitah and just you know some of the the different um, articles that have been written about it, and and you know, it's interesting that Shemitah. We're talking about the context of we're talking about Shemitah and these very material spiritual kind of like you know like it has material implications even though it's kind of a spiritual material piece um and 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 we're trying to do this within the context of like white supremacy and capitalism right and so it's like <laughs> it's like so 
how, how, why do we waste so much food? And it's like, well, we have these two kind of competing, not competing values, but these are, these are the values, right, of like this secularized world that we live in. And it was interesting kind of reading about the rabbis kind of like having these contests, like, like should we observe Shemitah? How should we observe Shemitah? Like, what are the loopholes? Like, how should we loop in the Palestinians? You know, and so there's a lot of really deep um, conversations, I think, about Shemitah that like would that necessitate us like bringing into the conversation really early, like white supremacy and, and capitalism, um, so that we can grapple with those. So I just wanted to add that to what to what Paul had brought into the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point and something that we're trying to think of as we think of how to con contextualize Shemitah in a contemporary society because um, those are the foundations of our society in some ways. And so what does it look like? You know, I um, reading about the way food was aggregated during the Shemitah year, you know, everything in the olive groves, the community would bring it together, the oil would be pressed and all of that would go into a communal storehouse that would then be redistributed to the community according to their need. But what does that look like? Who's in control of the storehouse in a white supremacist capitalist society? And then who, you know, how, how is the distribution monitored so that you make sure that the people who like, that the people who need have agency in that and it's not um, something out of the control of the will of the people. And like in, in Shemitah, it's the court that uh, monitors this storehouse, but are according to some rab rabbinical interpretations of what Shunta means. Um, and so I, I'm curious, like, what, what is that system now? Who is control, who has control of our food distribution now? And, and what would it look like to really think about what is a communal storehouse of food? You know, who, how, how do you, where, and what are the steps maybe both in your work, Damien, and your work Paul in the advocacy and political um, kind of national level, like what are the steps of transitioning from that, from one, one system to another? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing I'll say is, you know, so at Mazon, like you said, we focus on, uh, we focus on advocacy that that does include local and state based advocacy, but uh, largely we're doing federal level advocacy. And I think for me, one of the things we need to be, we need to be very clear about if we're going to engage our government, which Mazan's core belief is that the government has a responsibility and the ability to end hunger um, among people of all faiths and backgrounds. And in order to do that, we need to acknowledge, as you were saying, Damien, that, you know, we hear the term food deserts a lot of the time, but food apartheid is a much more accurate way to describe it because uh, it's not, random that communities of color face structural barriers to accessing healthy food. Their communities often lack access to healthy and nutritious food because, you know, the, 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 the effects of um, segregation and redlining make it so that these communities are oversaturated with food that's high in fat and sugar and salt sold for cheap prices at corner, star, corner stores and fast food restaurants. That's not accidental. This is very intentional, and we need to be we need to be you know upfront about that when we are. And Mazon makes an effort to be upfront about that when we are engaging with government leaders because we can't. 
this didn't just fall into anybody's laps. This was an intentional effort. Um, so I think, you know, for me, that's one of the first steps uh, to taking action is acknowledging that. Yeah, um, it's a big question. I think that when it comes to the question of transitioning and what are the steps, um, I, I kind of, and this is because of recent experiences, I go back to the distinction between equity and equality, right? And, and this is the thing, right? <laughs> Everybody wants their everything to be equal because that sounds great, right? Like it sounds good for things to be equal. It sounds good for things to be be equally accessible. But because of the supremacist and capitalist systems, everything's not, right? And so then we need to have this equity framework, which says that some people actually deserve more. Some people don't deserve more. Some people need more because they're so disadvantaged in the first place. You know, so when you, you, when you, when you have these conversations, people are happy to have conversations about equality because that means that they don't lose. Right. And I think it's like, it's really important to kind of like a white supremacist framework to say, like, if you're a hundred, if you're a century farmer or whatever they call themselves in Colorado, right. When you have your farm for over a hundred years, right. Equality in, 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 in like, if we're talking about redistributing land, right. Then there's no possible way that you as a settler farmer in Colorado are going to feel, feel like equity is fair. Right but equity might be what's necessary, right? Because if we've had people who have been displaced from land experience genocide and massacre, right? Then what is the appropriate response as not that I did the harm, but as a person who belongs to the group that has harmed, right? And so really bringing in equity and recognizing like, look, like the system is this way because we built, because certain people built the system this way. People are disadvantaged because certain people in the system are built to be disadvantaged, right? And it would be remiss of me, you know, I know you all are, are, are all, uh, mostly I would imagine American Jews, right? But not to acknowledge what's happening right now with Israel and Palestine, right? And saying like, and it, it must rock, it, it rocks everybody to their core, right? But then especially like, you know, if you're a Jewish person living in the United States who has an affinity for Israel because of so many different reasons, right? But then also recognizing as a person who's really interested in justice, that justice isn't being served, right? And so my, I guess my challenge here is like, as these people who are living in the United States who have connections <laughs> to this part of the world where, you know, really where atrocious things are happening, how do I think globally in that sense, right? But then act locally in this sense, right? How do I think as an international person, but recognize that I have like very specific um, outlets of power here in the United States in my personal networks. And it really begins with like recognizing that equity means that I might have to give something. Like the transition doesn't happen and everybody remains happy, right? The transition is gonna happen and some people are gonna be probably pretty pissed off about it. But that doesn't mean that the transition isn't necessary. And that doesn't mean that the transition isn't possible. So I think it's, you know, what I found as a teacher and in like doing this work is like, you have to really throw that challenge down to people and be like, look, you have to change. Not just you, but me, right, as a person. I have to change and I have to really be willing to say like, these are my values and I'm gonna figure out with other like-minded people how to operationalize these values. Um, so I can get on my soapbox super quick, but it's like that equity piece and really recognizing that like it's a personal investment. It's not just systemic change. 
um, because I I really love Jiddu Krishnamurti, um, Indian scholar. Um, And he says that you can't, anytime you try to impose a system on people from the outside, the people will rebel, right? The people will just be like, that's not, that's not a system that I created. And it, it, it creates like, you know, problems for us psych, 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 psychologically. And so the systems that we're looking for can't come from government institutions. They have to come from us, right? And that's where an idea, uh, 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 not an idea, uh, uh, I'm having a hard time, a commitment like Shemitah or the Jubilee year or the sabbatical year or however you call it. Like that's what they, they are, is they're direct challenges. They, they, you know, they cause us to confront what's wrong outside, but then also what's going on internally with us. Very powerfully put, thank you, Damien. Yeah, I think bringing in Israel-Palestine is relevant and necessary. And especially as we think, you know, contemporary young Jews in America, which is the audience that I primarily interact with as many people are waking up to, uh, white supremacy and our, the roles that we play in it in, in the United States as Ashkenazi Jews and what does it mean to stand with Black Lives Matter? What does it mean to be anti-racist in our practice, in, in our lives here? And then, and then extending that to how do we understand Israel, Palestine, and how do we understand those as part of the same issue? And what is the violence being done in our name on a very direct level? And what does it mean to take and tangible action and to engage in um, uncomfortable conversations that have many layers on on in top of them but that is like what is our internal obligation um, and our community obligation and then also with I think with Shmita it's like mm-hmm. yes that individual it's like what is our individual what when I think about a farmer you know, like the rules for the individual farmer in Shemitah are very specific. You know, you dissolve the borders, you cannot cultivate in your field, and you have to let everyone eat of them. And then also, in turn, like you are being, you, like society is ensuring that you have what you need. And so what is it, like, what does that balance look like? What does it look like to dissolve our, to dissolve our borders, to say we're, we're going to not have control right now over this communal need, this communal, this thing that everyone needs access to. And like, in order for everyone to have access, I need to relinquish control and trust that I will have my needs met. And so what are the systems for the people who have access to what they need to trust that if they let go of control, they can still, they will still have their needs met and kind of what are their needs? Um, yeah, and I'm curious, uh, Paul, if, if any of this, how does, you know, how does this show up in the work of Mazon and, and, and in your understanding of being a young Jewish person in America doing hunger, anti-hunger work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting because Mazon has been around for, this is actually our 36th, uh, this year is our 36th anniversary. Um, and so Mazon has been around for a lot of, you know, it was founded at a different time. Um, and uh, I think that what it means to be an American Jew has shifted over that time. And the way that we talk about these issues uh, has changed. And I think that, um, you know, we're trying to be intentional, as I was saying, about acknowledging the, the detrimental effects of white supremacy. And we, we can't, you know, I think when Mazon first undertook advocacy, 
it was a little bit more passive talking about those issues. Um, and I'm pleased to see that, you know, because I've only been with the organization for about uh, two and a half years, um, I'm pleased to see that there is a shift happening. And it's, it's fascinating because, you know, a lot of the people who have been supporting Mazone for 36, 36 years, you know, their, their views and what American Judaism looks like to them is very different than what it looks like to my generation. Uh, and, you know, I think that uh, as we saw last summer, um, I think that, you know, communities are realizing that we can't just not talk about uh, the longstanding effects of racism. And so Mazon is trying to be intentional about what is the role of race in, uh, in hunger. And, you know, it's not, a, like I was saying, it's not an, a, a coincidence that communities of color and other marginalized communities um, that, you know, hunger doesn't look the same for them as it does for other communities. That, that is, uh, that's very intentional. And so one of the things Mazon does is we prop up, uh, we focus on special populations. Um, we, uh, we undertake and try to highlight those communities based on what our uh, partners on the ground are saying. So we have grantee partners across the country who are, you know, those are food banks or legal aid societies or other direct service organizations. We specifically fund positions in those organizations to do advocacy. And we hear from those organizations, these are the communities that are coming to us. Um, and so we try to highlight those communities that whether it's in the anti-hunger community, in the American Jewish community are not being, hunger in those communities is not being talked about. Um, right now that includes, uh, um, single mothers, military families and veterans, senior citizens, and specifically LGBTQ senior citizens, and rural and remote populations, um, such as, uh, you know, native communities and tribal land. And, you know, when we talk about uh, food sovereignty, this is, you know, where it really gets interesting, because, you know, one of the things that, one of the reasons why Mazone believes that SNAP is such an important program, for instance, is because it allows people to feed themselves and their families with dignity to, you know, honor their culture in a way and purchase food that, uh, that they might not be able to get from even food recovery from, you know, a, a local food distributor. Um, and so I think it, I, you know, I understand that your organization, Damien, actively enrolls people in SNAP. And I, I mean, you can, I don't want to speak for you, but just from my own research, looking at your website, you know, I, that is such holy and important work because I think that it, it helps us sort of begin to address um, white supremacy and racism because it's not, it, it allows people to, you know, really, like I said, feed themselves with dignity. Um, and I think thinking about what that means is a huge part of, our reckoning as a community about our our role, uh, like you were saying, Damien. You know, while it's not the individual's fault for what has gone on for the past few hundred years, understanding that you know we are the community that has harmed, um, and Jews understand that so well. And we're talking about it with Israel Palestine because uh, we have been oppressed. And so, what does it mean to start to you know think about who is now? Who, who is being oppressed now. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll 
I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of really, there's a lot of really deep questions for sure. Um, but thank you, Paul. I did want to just, I was just going to speak to a little bit of that because a a Hannah and Adam asked us to speak about food justice and we hadn't quite gotten there yet necessarily. And so, you know, you all can see this on our website, but the way that Frontline operates is that we, we kind of, it's a, it, we operate on this spectrum from food access to food sovereignty, right? And so we recognize food access, right? So food access is like, it's acute hunger. So we can't, even though we may have this long vision and this like liberatory vision, we can't necessarily ignore that people are hungry now. So we participate with Denver Food Rescue. We rescue food um, that we distribute um, within Denver. I think last year we rescued about 44,000 pounds of food, um, just frontline farming and distributed that to different communities. Um, we also do a lot of work with SNAP. So those of you who are in Colorado and don't know this, is SNAP is actually Colorado, Coloradoans are under enrolled in SNAP. I think we have like about a 70% SNAP enrollment rate. I think it might actually be a little bit less than that. And so yes, Frontline Farming took it upon ourselves this past year, especially with COVID to, to, to get the training to hire the right people so that we could start enrolling folks in SNAP. And so just so we're clear, it's not just, um, it's not just historic people who historically have been associated with food stamps, right? Like single mothers or POC. We also register farm workers. We also re register farmers because what most people don't know is I think it's about 54% of Colorado farmers make less than $25,000 a year, right? So the majority of, of farmers in Colorado are actually really poor people, right? Um, you know, like, well, let's get that right. Um, oh, there was so much more I wanted to say. So then food justice then is in the middle. And I think this gets to what Paul was speaking about, about advocacy, right? So we don't look at food justice as being the pinnacle. We look at food justice as, as appealing to the systems that already, that currently exist, right? So when you go and you create policy, like we we're trying to do with, with when we advocate for the Farm Workers Bill of Rights, right? It's a recognition that that type of work is justice work because we are, we are dealing with, with, with state governments, whether it be on the state level or, or federal level. And that really is the place where advocacy and where we're gonna find this thing called justice, right? But then we also have it move forward when we talk about food sovereignty. And to me, Shemitah, the idea of Shemitah is about food sovereignty, right? It's about people having control over their resources enough to make a decision on whether or not land lies fallow and for it not to be a purely economic, um, a purely economic calculation, because as we all know, as people who live in society, like the world does not just function on economics alone. And we have so many different considerations that we need to make for our fellow people, right? To make sure that they're okay, while at the same time making sure we're okay. So really sovereignty is about creating those systems to me that exist outside of the confines of government and that type of, that type of interference which allow us to build like true, like structures that are truly liberatory. And I loved it when Hannah said, you know, what does it look like to dissolve our borders? And to me, you weren't talking about like our national borders, you were talking about like our individual borders, right? Those borders that exist within us that separate us from other people and, and cause us to do things like hoard food or like where I'm from in North Carolina where people were hoarding gasoline, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, that's, we need to get away from that. And so I really appreciated that comment um, because it made, me, it made me think about like our own internal borders. Um, but then also like we need to, to continue to try to move past simply advocating for food justice within the context of government and start to think about how we can build our own systems.
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, Damien. And and I'm sure you have other <laughs> other questions, but I wanted to bounce off of something that you said that uh, speaks to exactly why we do the work we do the way that we do it, um, and sort of tying it back into Judaism. There are sort of there's charity and there's justice. So if you think about sadaka versus sedek, you know where does the word sadaka come from? Uh, sadaka, you know, as we know, is the idea of you know it, it is charity, which is rooted in sort of tikkun olam, repairing the world. Um, and like you said, Damien, exactly what you said that uh, people need to people who need food need to be fed now. You know, they can't wait for a, a bill to pass. They can't wait for bureaucracy or for the laws to change. Um, they need to be fed now, which is why uh, food rescue and distribution efforts on the ground are so unbelievably crucial. Um, and we need to sort of address the root causes of why people were hungry in the first place. And SNAP sort of is in the middle of this because it not only gets people fed, but it also is proven to lift people out of poverty. Um, and we can't rely on that program alone or on government solutions alone uh, to uh, find an end to hunger. Damien is completely right. We need to create our own systems. Um, but yeah, it's just it's this idea of sort of starting to think about that difference between Sadaka and Sedek or charity and justice. Um, and that's sort of how I approach our work. Wow, yes, thank both of you. Um, I, yeah, and both of you have pulled on these threads of, of just not that they're in conflict, but that actually we need to be addressing things on multiple levels all of the time. So yes, like we need to be addressing people's immediate hunger needs and yes, within the systems that we have set up, like what does food justice look like? What does community led food justice? And also, you know, there's like larger organizational food justice efforts. And then, and then, yeah, what does food sovereignty look like? And how are we building systems that um, feed all of these and also move us towards the side of food sovereignty, sovereignty, like move us towards kind of emancipation and, and liberation so that everyone not only has what they need, but like it is able to um, create the conditions for the lives that they, that are like lives of dignity and respect and the lives that they want to live. And so I, um, yeah, and I think about Shemitah, it's interesting, Damien, because I hadn't thought of it. I mean, I've thought about it in the food sovereignty context, but I've always kind of gotten stuck on like, who has, you know, like, it is a guideline and uh I always think of it as food justice because like who, you know, it's like an edict passed down from the religious, like, you know, powers that be that say like, this is, you know, the, this is what we're doing. This is how the Torah is saying, like, we are adjusting for equity in our society. And, um, but it is interesting reading the ways that all of these different farmers and like community members buy into Shvita. So it is very much like, and, it, and the way it is parceled in different communities. So like different rabbis and different interpretations. Um, and it played out differently. There was not like just one way that it played out in the communities in which it was considered a role um, and a guideline. And so, yeah, I'm just curious. I feel like there's some variability and maybe not just like a one, an umbrella, like this is how society will enact Shvita, but like, based on the community that is a part of and the needs of that community, it will be, um, it will 
kind of shift in its in its in its mission and in and in its um, enactment. Um, I also wanted to. There are a couple of really great questions in the chat, and I just wanted to ask a couple of them as we head into the last ten minutes of our time. Um, and this was. Okay, here's a question from Adele about land use and agricultural land. I think it kind of speaks a little bit to something you shared in your intro, Damien, about land access and what that had to do with the way your understanding, your relationship to food and land was shaped. And so um, the question is, what about land use and losing agricultural land? Some of the conservancies are looking for farmers to manage older donor farms. Is this something you've looked at? Um, so this is an awesome question. Is it is it Edel? Um, yeah, we ha actually have. And so I just wanted, what is the best way to say this? This is interesting in terms of thinking about, again, like white supremacy. I was thinking about it recently and it is, I think it's almost as if the way that we think about farm inheritance happening through families almost guarantees farm centralization. So this is the thing we've been doing a lot of work with, with agricultural workers, with farm workers. And in Colorado, some, Col some Colorado rural communities are 25% Latinx, 35% Latinx, right? These are people who come from agricultural regions. They come to the United States to participate in agricultural work. They come back to the United States year in and year out, even though the, back, the work is backbreaking and grueling and they don't have access to so many of the things that we do as workers that we take for granted in various industries but we've never and we and, we, and i keep still seeing bills about urban rural economic development you know and how do we save farms and it's like you probably figure out a way to save farms if you could if we could cut through some of the some of the racist bullshit and actually start to give this land to Latinx farmers who actually care about the land, who actually have been the stewards of the land and who have actually been farming the land for in some cases generations, right? But we never have that conversation about urban or about rural economic development because there are some very serious racialized discourses that, that, pre that prevent that from happening. But to me, you, we have a really easy pathway toward re in, you know, reinvigorating rural communities because the people who want to do it are already there. The people who are doing the farming are already there. We just pretend like they're not there. We just invisibilize them. And because we invisibilize them, we end up having some like a really intellectual conversation about land redistribution when it doesn't have to be an intellectual conversation. And I think that's like, that's why I liked the question so much. Cause it's like, yes, totally. The people who want to do it, the people who are farming are already there. We just don't have the systematic mechanisms and we don't have the, the ideological you know, fortitude to be able to to start thinking about that type of transition. So I really appreciated the question. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. And I think about the, you know, the uh, origins of kind of the food sovereignty movement and the campesinos in like Central and South America, which was that was that was the root of it was like land access and like, this is our land. Why is 92% of it owned by people who don't live here? And why do we not have access to the land that we have been living on for so many years? Um, I also had a, let's see, what time is it? Okay, got a little bit of time. Um, another question in the chat, which is maybe uh, kind of talking about what we were a little bit earlier about um, 
how to work internally and in a subversive way to the systems of white supremacy and capitalism that we are a part of. So, and then also how to work to create systems that are outside of that. And so how to, how to do that balance between working with inside, inside the system and working outside of it is a question put by Hanok, who's part of our Denver cohort. Yeah, I think that is such an important question. Uh, and for me, you know, just personally speaking, this is something that I sort of struggled with both during my time more directly involved with food recovery and when I transitioned into this role. You know, when we talk about food recovery, food recovery can only exist if food waste exists. So, you know, when I was partnering with our on campus dining provider, which was run by Sodexo, a massive corporation. Uh, in order for us to have this program, they needed to be wasting food for us to have to recover. So I was constantly struggling with, you know, like this is a really important solution now to get these people fed because this food is going to waste. And we also need to talk about pushing these corporations not to waste food in the first place and to be more responsible about uh, food. And that's why it's also so important to connect people to where the food is coming from, you know, talk about the whole talk about farm to table, you know, we need, people need to have a relationship with the food that they are eating, which in our society, for the most part, we really, we, we don't. Um, and thinking now in my current role at Mazone, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, on the one hand, we're, we're absolutely working within the system of our government, because we're our, you know, sort of core belief is that the government, that hunger is a, an issue of political will, and the government, as I said at the beginning, has both a responsibility and the ability to end hunger in the United States. Um, but that being said, we, as Damien so aptly pointed out, we need to also create our own systems. We can't solely rely uh, on these systems that exist. So it is sort of a, that is a, you know, there's, there's definitely a, a conflict and contradiction, there, a contradiction there. But um, uh, I think that one of Mazon's main roles is holding the government accountable for the oppressive systems that it has created that allow people to struggle to feed themselves and their families in the wealthiest country on earth. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really important. And then Paul brought up the idea of contradictions. And I think that, you know, it's 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 almost like the con it's the contradictions in a lot of this work, which is why frontline farming exists. You know, um, it is to not to take advantage of the of the of the contradictions, but to stand in the contradictions and to say like these are the important places where we need to be doing this work. You know, and we have um, I don't want to say grudgingly like we recognize so many things that were happening with farm workers, but getting into like the world of policy and you know, like the advocacy um, has has been painful and and difficult, right? Because, you know, I mean, I've been in rooms and I, I won't name names, but I, I really started to recognize over this last year really like that so many of the rooms where white supremacy, like all of these things are perpetuated, like we're just not in. And I don't mean like we as in like brown or black people, but like many, many of you either. Like we're not in those rooms and the types of political calculations and the types of, um, um, you know, things that, that people with a political bent are willing to give away, you know, can be quite shocking. 
you know, when I was having, I was at the state capitol, you know, the other day, and, you know, my whole point was like, if you make rules that you as a, as a policy person think are like, well, we got it okay this time, we didn't get it quite right, so we'll get it, we'll do better next time, you know, and I was trying to say that in the meantime, people die, right, like, that's what that means, like, when you talk about, you know, like, oh, we're just going to compromise, and like, it's going to be fine, we'll get it better the next time, and then people die, you know, kids Farm workers' children die in trailers because their parents weren't home, right? Because, and they can't, you know, I mean, there's so many things like farm workers die because they're too exhausted to do their job safely or because they've never been trained to do their job or to, to work a piece of machinery effectively, right? Because it's always, it's always about like this capitalist intention, like producing the most in the least amount of time with the least amount of pay. And it, 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 it's, that's been my overwhelming, you know, kind of response to the, to, the, to the necessity of doing policy work is that I don't know how some people do it um, because it is deeply painful. And you see a lot of things that are often perpetuated um, that you personally know are not right. And you as an individual would never stand for, right? In your, in your life, you would never allow people to treat you like this. But then you're in these rooms where it's kind of made to seem like, oh, this is fine. This is okay. This compromise is fine. You know, and so it's 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 just it's that contradiction and standing in those contradictions and then be like, no, it's not fine. This is actually white supremacy. Like I actually had to say that in a meeting. Like people didn't like it, but it was true, you know, and so like needing to stand in those contradictions and then speak, you know, really powerfully. Um, you know, that's been my overwhelming experience. And it's just absolutely exhausting um as a black person. <laughs> Um, I don't know if it's exhausting for other people. I don't walk in anybody else's shoes, but for me, it's, it's very tiring. Yeah. And that, thank you for sharing. And some of what you spoke on is about the exhaustion that you experience kind of in, in the policy realm and also the exhaustion of the people who like farm workers, as you were saying, like the, the labor laws and the ways that the system is set up is not for necessarily a whole human being to be have what they need in its food and it's also rest and I feel like that's the other like another facet of Shemitah is like rest and release like a year of rest for farm workers you know there is no cultivating of the land and everybody has what they need and the land is allowed to rest as well and so just this understanding is of rest is not a um of like a, a benefit or, or as like a, a nice extra thing, but as an essential thing for like human life and respect. And what does it look like so people can rest and know that they have the food that they need and that they don't need to break their backs um, or neglect their children in order to, you know, participate in the system. Um, and oh, we have zero minutes left, but I would love to, in the end, just hear from both of you, and we're, we're really trying to focus this on this, how does this group, how do these people thinking about this really move towards action? And I think you've brought in a lot of pieces that can inform how people might wanna move that. And, and in some ways they're like, just sitting in the contradiction and where do you go from there? But if you have any last minute thoughts of, of moving towards action, what that could look like for people in this conversation. Um, and if there's any links, we can add them in the chat and post them on resources later. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm happy to share a few action steps. I mean, I think the first thing, uh, the obvious thing is advocate. And that doesn't necessarily 
that can mean, you know, political advocacy and engaging with the government, but also advocacy is really just making your voice heard in any setting. Um, and so uh, my zone, you know, offers uh, advocacy opportunities, whether that's letter writing campaigns to elected officials and things like that, but also uh, just educational programs, because the first step to advocating is educating and learning about what hunger actually looks like in the United States today. Um, we have a variety of programs that uh, educate about hunger from a Jewish lens. Um, so if you are interested in any of those, you know, you can poke around our website. I sent um, Hannah and Adam, oh, there you go, <laughs> some links that are now in the chat. Um, if you have any questions about those, if you are interested in uh, scheduling and planning, you know, an educational program, uh, in any way that would be meaningful to you and your community, please be in touch with me and I'm happy to help you. Um, and yeah, I guess I would just finish, you know, by saying that, uh, yeah, I, th I think it's a matter of advocating and making your voice heard in the way that you think is meaningful um, and educating those around you about what hunger looks like. Because I think for too long, this the conversation about hunger, hunger in this country has been sort of well, that's just how hunger just exists. And, you know, we can just have canned food, especially in the Jewish community, we've seen our, you know, our synagogues and things like that just host food drives and sort of, not that that isn't uh, a, a, an important thing to do, you know, as we've said throughout this conversation, people need to be fed now, uh, but we also need to dig deeper. Uh, so I'm happy to explore that with all of you and think about how we can do that. Um, and create a world in which no one struggles to do such a basic thing as feed themselves and their families. So, yeah. Mm, thanks, Paul. I, I was gonna say, I think I, and I, I admitted to Hannah and Paul and Adam that this is always the mo most difficult question. So I can say um, you can start certainly by going um, to our website frontlinefarming.org and um, you can catch link into our newsletter. We actually do a great job of, of letting people know what are the issues, what are the topics that we are confronting, whether it be on an advocacy level, whether it be in education, whether it be in food sovereignty um, and, and start to really kind of understand the work and the trajectory of the work that we're doing. Um, we're also, we didn't do it in, in well, last year, obviously we're still in a, in, in a COVID moment um, we're taking volunteers um, at our farms again. So that's a, an opportunity to kind of start to engage with frontline farming um, by coming out to the farms. I mean, of course, like, you know, we always say we're farmers first. We do all this other stuff, but we do all the other stuff almost so we can farm, you know, kind of in peace. So we, we, we enjoy inviting people um, to the farm to, to have that type of experience. Um, more broadly, I think what Paul said about advocacy is important. And then I think, you know, it's there, all of these international issues, all of these global issues have local manifestations, right? Whether it be through land use, whether it be through um, taxes, whether it be through education and education policy, whether it be through food, food policy, hunger, food rescue. And so I would, I would um, really support or encourage everybody to start 
that process of thinking about what advocacy around these issues looks like on the local level. There are really like local organizations that are working on so many issues and really kind of starting to connect with them to understand the work that they're doing, especially if their work, if their work is led by people who have been victims of whatever that particular, you know, issue is, right? If it's like hunger, then, you know, organizations that have started, have been started by people who have experienced hunger, you know? So, I mean, I really think it's important to, to advocate, to, to follow, right? To put ourselves in the position of humility where we can really follow those folks who have had those experiences, who can start to articulate their own perspective on what the, on what changes need to be made. And then also, you know, I think Paul said this also education, 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 you know, we talked about issues of white supremacy, um, but that's not typical parlance in every household. That's, that's not something that, you know, every white family spends time around the dinner table talking about white supremacy, I would imagine. Right. And so that's, it's the necessity to, to start to have that recognition. And then, you know, you all have been really great about like bringing back in your Jewish heritage and like so many different things that, that Jewish people have experienced globally. And that's a part of this too. Like, oh, like we've had all these experiences and now we're here and like we have this relative privilege. What does that mean <laughs> to have relative privilege as people who have been oppressed or even for me as a black man who's cisgendered and heterosexual, like I have power. What does it mean as a person who's oppressed in a certain context to then turn around and use the relative privileges that I have. Um, and so those are the types of things that I grapple with, like in my own movement as a person trying to figure out how to how to best engage. But, you know, I mean, you can talk to Adam, like I didn't know anything about food, but I was willing to walk in and talk to 10 high school students. And I was reading the night before and I just like go and read it. And then I turn around the next day and I teach it. You know, and now I'm able to be in a position like this to speak to you all, you know, with a lot more knowledge and a lot more experience. And so um, those are the things I would say, and hopefully um, that can be helpful. But I'm also happy to, um, I'll put my email in here and happy to to take, you know, questions and things like that. And then I have a, an email about to go out to Hannah and Adam that they will forward to you about the Farm Worker Bill of Rights. Thank you.